Uh, have you ever been in a situation in which you didn't know what to do? Maybe you were uh, at a doctor's office and they gave you a diagnosis and you were like, I don't know what to do next. Or maybe you had been studying for a test and then when the test is laying in front of you, everything you studied is like a foreign language. Or, or maybe you're at the first day on the job and you're just not sure what the next thing is for you to do. Or maybe it was the first time someone placed a baby into your arms. I remember the moment in which my children, each of them, were placed into my arms and I felt such joy and fear as I'm trying to figure out, what do I do with this? We've all been in those moments in which you're like, I don't know what to do next. When we get to Acts chapter one, we see where the apostles are put in a situation in which they just don't know what to do. And yet the Lord takes this time as a moment where by his spirit, he shepherds them to make hard decisions and to do the right thing so that they can know what to do in replacing Judas Iscariot. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. The disciples, they're waiting for what's next. They're looking forward to, they're anticipating the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and they're facing this leadership challenge. It has to be addressed. There's old business that had to be taken care of. What are they going to do about Judas Iscariot? Well, with only 11 apostles that are left, if they're going to spearhead a renewal and a restoration of God's people, the question is, how can they move forward one person short of 12? So what we see here in Acts chapter 1 so far in this new sermon series called Sent is we're walking through the book of Acts together and the disciples, who are the apostles, they are waiting for the Holy Spirit. Now, the book of Acts is just rich, tremendous uh, historical narrative about how the early church was started and planted and began to spread throughout the nations. But y'all, as we read Acts together as a faith family, this is our story. This is your story. This is how we began and where God began a, a movement just in the heart of Jerusalem. And it has now spread thousands of miles over thousands of years. And now you and I are locked arms with believers throughout the ages based upon what began here in the book of Acts. We see throughout this book where God is, has his outward focus. He's sending his people as witnesses to the, all over the world for the spread of the gospel. And for us as a faith family, we must continually be thinking outward. That's the challenge for this month is, is taking cookies to your neighbors. Is we want to be thinking about those who are far from God. And the first way we can begin that relationship is by taking them some cookies. Uh, there's a guy in our church who shared with me this week. He says, Kenneth, I'm sorry, but we've not been taking cookies. We've been taking banana bread. And I'm like, that is perfectly fine. I love it. But it, it, the Lord has introduced some inroads into different houses around his neighborhood. And he's trying to get in those relationships so he can point people to Jesus. Well, this is who we are as a people. We are a good news people. We have a gospel to share with the nations and with our neighbors. And in Acts chapter one, the disciples are waiting for the spirit that Jesus promised. But where we find ourselves in verses 15 and following is in this 10-day window between Jesus's ascension back up into heaven and then the fall of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 
Pentecost is still days away. And so the disciples, they're, they're sticking together. They're banding together. They're praying together. They're waiting for the Lord's promise of the Spirit. And it's from this posture of being united in prayer, Peter begins to recall various passages from the Old Testament. He recalls how the Psalms pointed to the coming king who would be opposed by a traitor. That the king would one day be betrayed by one of his closest friends. And the word is giving them clues as to what they are to do next. Look with me in Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. The scripture says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters. The number of people who were together was about 120 and said, Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldamah, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles." This morning, I want you to notice in the text how the apostles addressed the leadership challenge they were facing and what this means for us. I want you to see first that the apostles addressed the problem. They addressed the problem. Peter here is not sugarcoating the scandal regarding Judas Iscariot. Instead of covering up what he did, instead, verse 15, he stood up and he exposed it. He takes the initiative and tackles it head on. Now, don't skip over what Simon Peter is saying here in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter says Judas's betrayal was necessary. It had to take place. Why? Because it's written in scripture. You see, what God says is going to happen in the Bible, it's going to happen. When God makes a promise that something's going to occur, you can bank your soul that it is true and it will take place. You see, God the Holy Spirit spoke through King David and said exactly what was going to happen. In verse 20, we're given two cross-references to two different psalms that David wrote, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But don't miss what Peter is doing here. Peter is teaching hermeneutics. 
Peter is teaching the apostles and he's teaching us today how to interpret the Bible. You see, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 were not just laments of David about his enemies that he was facing, but they were actually pointing to what would happen to Jesus. You see, the entire Old Testament is pointing to Christ. In Luke 24, Jesus said, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them all the things concerning himself. You see, your Bible is red letter front to back. It's all the word of Christ. And the entire Old Testament is driving us to Jesus. Here is Peter standing up in this moment of a leadership crisis saying, we've got a guy who defected. He left us. What are we going to do? And the scripture and the the spirit brings to mind scripture. We see this reference to Psalm 69. We see this reference to Psalm 109. And we see where Simon Peter is understanding the scriptures in light of Christ. You see, the first question that you ask when you study the Bible, it must not be, what does this verse mean to me? That can't be your first question. The first question you ask when you approach the Bible is, what does this text mean? We have to understand what it means in light of the context around it, the passage in which it's located, the chapter that it's around it, the entire book that it's located in, and then the entire uh, testament that it's in, old or new, and then the entire Bible. We can't just take verses and say, man, this is what it means to me. So a couple years ago, Kentucky was make a run for the final four. And one of our basketball players took his sneakers and he wrote Philippians 4.13 on it. And I thought, internally, I hope that's true. But in all reality, that's not what Paul meant. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me does not mean he's going to help you hit a jump shot. Now, as a Kentucky fan, I was like, I hope that's true. (laughs) What Peter's teaching you and what he's teaching me right now is that we can't just take the Bible and make it say what we want it to say. We have to look and understand it in light of what it's actually saying to its original audience and what it means in light of Jesus. It's driving us to Christ. Because you got to remember, the Bible is not about you. The Bible is for you. There's a huge difference. You see, the Bible is about Jesus and what God has done for you in the gospel. And here is Peter connecting Judas Iscariot to the one who was prophesied about a thousand years earlier through David. Simon Peter is taking the scriptures and showing how it's fulfilled in Jesus. But let's remember this, y'all. Jesus was never caught off guard by Judas Iscariot. He wasn't shocked by the betrayal of one of his closest friends. First of all, He is the word of God. Jesus is the author of the Old Testament. Jesus is the ancient of days who was and is and is to come. And yet Jesus explicitly told us what was in the heart of Judas. In John 6, Jesus told his disciples, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
But Judas was, verse 16, he's the guide to those who arrested Jesus. Matthew 27 says that after Judas, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he realized what he had done. And the scripture says he felt regrets. And then he went and hanged himself. Verse 18 gives us very graphic detail of what happened. That, I, that it looks like the rope snapped and he fell head first and his intestines spilled out. Very graphic information that the word is laying out for us of what actually happened. But you see, Judas, he felt regret. He did not feel repentance. There is a huge difference between regret and repentance. You see, regret looks backward in shame. Repentance looks upward with joy. When you sin, do you look backward with shame? Or do you say, Lord, that's not me. I'm not going there anymore. I'm turning, I'm repenting from that, and I'm looking unto you. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that when you trust in Christ, not only are you in filled with the Holy Spirit, but he empowers you to live a godly life. He enables you to walk with him so that when you sin as a believer, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And you're like, oh, I don't wanna go that way. I'm turning to Jesus and I'm following him. And it's that repentance that leads to joy. One of the lies that Satan will whisper to you is that when you come to Jesus, your life gets worse. That is hot garbage. When you trust in Christ, he so fills you with so much joy because you realize you're so messed up apart from Christ that when you try to do, live your life on your own power, your own strength, on your own way, it always leads to destruction. Every time. How, Kenneth, how do you know that? The Bible tells us that if you try to live your life in any way apart from the path of Christ, it always leads to destruction. So as followers of Jesus, we are to be continually repenting, continually turning away from our sin and looking unto Christ. And when we do, it leads to joy. It leads us to being full of the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. My concern is that living here in the South, there are many who have a story similar to Steve's. They grow up being around the things of Jesus. They go to church and they think they're saved based upon their grandmother's faith or because they do good things or because they've gotten baptized at some point. Those things do not save you. Judas is someone who was constantly around Jesus. He knew about Jesus here. He did not submit to Jesus here. What about you? Do you know about Jesus? You go to church, you've done religious things, or have you submitted your heart to him as Lord and King of your life? Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day, many, don't miss that word that Jesus uses, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Judas preached in the name of Jesus. Judas cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Judas performed miracles in the name of Jesus. And yet in John 17, 12, Jesus called Judas the son of destruction. Do not fool yourself into thinking that you're right with God because you go to church. Do not fool yourself in thinking you're right with God because you do religious things. You live a moral life. You've been baptized or you know someone in your life who's a believer. Those things cannot save you on the last day. Only Jesus can save you. Look unto Christ today. Believe the gospel. Leave behind the things of this world. Don't trust in your own works to make you right with God because it's insufficient. You're imperfect and don't meet his perfect standard. He can't. But the good news is Jesus kept the perfect standard for you. He lived that perfect sinless life that you couldn't live. And he died the death that you deserved. And all of your sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to Jesus at the cross. His blood was sufficient to cover all of your sin. That if you repent, you turn from your sin and trust in him by faith, he will rescue you. He will save you and call you to himself. This great and glorious Savior died for you. But that's not the end of the story. He also rose again on the third day. He defeated death. And anybody and everybody in the whole wide world who trusts in Christ, you will be received by him forever. This is the gospel that we rally around as believers every Sunday. This is the gospel that has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. This is the gospel that we continue to study and to grow in the grace and knowledge of this. And this is the gospel that we take to the ends of the earth. What are you trusting in to save you on the last day? Are you trusting in yourself? Or are you trusting in Christ? May I say to you, would you turn away from yourself and your plans and your purposes and the things that you have, you're trusting in to save you, and would you lean on Jesus alone? Here are the disciples in a really difficult situation. They're, they've got to replace a leader and they're trying to figure out what to do next. But let's not miss the story of Judas Iscariot, someone who was, knew about Jesus, but didn't know Jesus. What about you? But let's also not miss the bigger picture of what's happening here. Though Judas's actions were evil, y'all, he did not thwart God's greater purposes. This is where we get into the mind of God that is so beautiful and majestic that his thoughts are way above our thoughts and his ways are way above our ways. God worked even through, through, through the wicked schemes of an evil man to accomplish his plan. That God used Judas' selfish ambition, his greed, his pride to fulfill his saving purposes through his son. And today, as followers of Christ, y'all, we are a people, we do not fear the wicked. For we know that they are mere pawns being pushed by the omnipotent finger of God across the chessboard of his sovereign plan. We are not terrified or afraid of what happens in Russia or China 
or Al-Qaeda. Because we see even through the work of Judas, God is using his wicked, evil schemes to accomplish his greater purposes. We can trust in our sovereign God who is working even through the wicked decisions of evil leaders to do something bigger than we can see. And we see that it brought about the salvation through Jesus Christ. So we too are a people. We're not afraid of those who are wicked because we're trusting in the one who gives the wicked life and breath and orchestrates and ordains their wicked schemes for his greater purposes. You see, we can say together as followers of Christ, in good times and bad times, Jesus remains Lord over all. Maybe you're going through a trial right now and you're just like, I don't know if I can make this. Maybe you're experiencing the foolish decisions of someone wicked in your life. Maybe you're going through a season right now in which you're just like, I don't know if I can make it to tomorrow. May I say to you, Jesus is Lord over all. If you are in Christ, he is with you and he loves you and he fights for you and he keeps you and no one can snatch you from his hand. He promises to be with you even to the end of the age. So you remain steadfast, trusting in Christ, banking your soul upon him. Why? Because he is faithful and he will keep you for himself. It's amazing how God accomplishes his greater purposes even through the wicked schemes of those who seek to do harm. And here in the text, as the apostles wait for the spirit, they address the problem of Judas's betrayal and departure. But I also want you to see number two, that they made a plan. They addressed the problem. They made a plan. Verse 21, therefore, okay, in light of verses 15 through 20, in light of Benedict Arnold, Peter and the apostles made a plan. They determined that they needed to replace Judas with someone who will become a witness for the office of apostle. Okay, it's important we kind of understand what's happening here. The office of apostle was given to 12 men who established the church as God's new Israel. Okay, Jesus appointed the 12 with the intention of establishing the church as the new Israel without denying the original Israel of its place in God's big plan or bigger story, okay? So we have these 12 apostles, representation of the 12 tribes of the Old Testament. Jesus is the true and greater Israel that we are looking forward to. And it is through these 12 that God is making a new people, a new Israel. So the question is, can anybody hold this office of apostle? The answer is no. It's not just for anybody. There are qualifications. Okay, what are the qualifications? Well, the text tells us the qualification to be an apostle. The first qualification is that you've got to be an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. Okay, to be an apostle, you had to be a member of the band of disciples who followed Jesus. Look at verse 21. It says, they, the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. From Jesus' baptism to his ascension, you had to be there. You had to be an eyewitness of his ministry. The second qualification was you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. In verse 22, it says, it, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, for the disciples, their testimony would rise and fall on their commitment to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
These men would suffer greatly for the sake of the gospel. What would compel these 12 men to most of them being crucified? Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. That Simon, uh, that um, John the Apostle was exiled on the island of Patmos. That these men who are listed in the text, these 12 apostles, would suffer terrible deaths. What would compel someone to stay faithful? It's because the resurrection is true. If Christ has defeated death, then we can stand firm. If Christ is not raised, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's go home, do whatever we want to do, live our lives, call home the missionaries, let's call off the mission. But if Christ has defeated death, and he has, then it's worth giving your all. And so here the apostles are putting together their plan. They're identifying someone who can take this leadership post, this office of apostle. And they're putting together this strategy of who they can identify for taking this role. Now, here's what I I was wrestling through this week, y'all, is what do we do with the apostle Paul? Okay, because we've got our 12 now with Matthias, which we're going to see here in just a moment. And so what does this look like? Well, here's what I found this week is that the Apostle Paul, here's a guy who did not, uh, he was not a believer and not a follower of Jesus when he was doing his ministry. And he was not there at the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And yet, Jesus still bodily appeared to, to the Apostle Paul. We see where Jesus himself appointed him to be an apostle. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here is a guy who could not get over how he had persecuted God's church. Here's a guy who wanted to kill Christians. He was pouring out threats against the church. Here's a guy who was trying to persecute God's people. And here he is like, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm planting churches. I'm making disciples. He ends up writing almost half the New Testament. It's amazing how the Lord still works in calling this man to this task. He told the Galatian church when he began his letter, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So this was the plan of the apostles, that there was gonna be a replacement of Judas Iscariot under the plan of God. They're gonna tap someone on the shoulder to replace Judas. Either, verse 23, Justice or Matthias. But before they did, number three, they prayed for wisdom. Then they prayed, verse 24, you Lord know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen. May I say to you, that's the best place to begin. Whenever you're making a big decision, when you're trying to figure out, okay, God, what is it you want to do? You begin with prayer. You see, beloved, God knows your hearts. He knows everything here. You can fool the world around you. You cannot fool the omnipotent seeing eye of God. In fact, Hebrews 4 tells us there's coming a day in which all things are going to be laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every thought, every action, every word, it's laid bare before the Lord, the great tribunal of God. 
And as followers of Christ, we don't fear that day because we know that on that day, Jesus is the one who has rescued us for that day. And at the same time, here are the disciples saying, Lord, you know what's in everybody's hearts. And we're trying to decide who's going to take this 12th man. Who's going to take this position? Is it, is it Justice or Matthias? Lord, you know their hearts. And here they are saying, God, would you please reveal to us? Would you show us what your plan is? We see this all the way back to chapter 1, verse 14, where they were continually united in prayer. These are a, a, a band of brothers and sisters who are diligently, continually seeking the Lord in prayer. And so they pray, they ask for God's wisdom. Would you direct us? Would you shepherd us to the man that you have for us to lead? And so instead of playing favorites, instead of playing politics, instead of elbowing for position, they're bowing their hearts united in prayer, which then finally led to number four, they moved forward. Verse 26, they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the eleven. Now, this practice of casting lots, it's mentioned 77 times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned seven times in the New Testament. Now, what it is, I have no idea. Uh, from what I was studying this week, it could be like drawing straws, okay? Or it could be trying to figure out like a flip of a coin. It very well could be what it is. Whatever it was, it was a common uh, decision-making strategy we see throughout the Old Testament of determining God's will in a situation. In Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So Kenneth, why do we not make decisions anymore by the casting of lots? Man, that would be awfully simple, wouldn't it? It's because we do not see this practice take place after Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes upon believers, decision-making is no longer dependent upon casting lots flipping a coin, but it's now following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who shepherds and guides us so that when we don't know what to do, we trust in the Spirit. In fact, this is the impact point. The one thing I want to challenge you with today is that when you don't know what to do, trust the Holy Spirit to lead you forward. You have God Almighty living inside of you. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You are kept until the day of redemption. He is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in the family of God. And now this shepherd lives inside of you and he leads you to where you are to go. So as we daily deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus, we submit and yield our lives to the leading of the Spirit. That He is the one who shepherds us and guides us so that when we don't even know what to do, we look unto Him. We ask the Spirit to guide and shepherd us. And I want to go a little bit deeper in this for just a moment, and we'll come back to this another day in a future sermon, but how can I know it's the Spirit? Let me give you a couple things. First of all, the Spirit will never contradict the Bible, ever. If someone tells you to do something, God told me you should do this, and it goes against Scripture, eh, time out, that's a bad burrito, bro. That ain't the Spirit. The Spirit never contradicts the Scriptures. 
In fact, you can discern the will of God by studying your Bible and asking for him to illumine from the scriptures how you are to move forward. I would add, gathering with faithful, godly believers. Surround yourself with those who provide wise counsel. Those who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, man, you seek their wisdom. Man, what do you think about this? Here's the scenario. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I see. How would you counsel me? The Spirit speaks through His people to shepherd us on how we can discern God's will. So through the Word, it's through godly counsel, and it's through prayer. It's time in which you are, you are on your knees seeking the face of the Lord And it's through those times of silence in which the Spirit will also prompt and lead, guide and shepherd you to know what you are to do. Many of you are facing a very difficult situation right now and you don't know what to do. May I invite you to say, Holy Spirit, would you lead me to know what to do? You seek his face. You get low before him and watch him work as you follow him. Yeah.